and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the Stevens and Harwood employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Richard Friedman and I'm an associate in the team. I have with me Kate Brearley, an employment partner in the Stevens and Harwood International Employment Group. This podcast is a second in our mini-series on employee competition, which coincides with the publication of the new edition of Kate's book, Employment Covenants and Confidence in Information, Law, Practice and Technique, co-written and co-edited with Selwyn Block QC of leading employment set Littleton Chambers. Congratulations, Kate, on this new and fourth edition of what is well known as a leading text on employee competition, and one frequently cited with approval by the courts. Thank you, Richard. With the significant growth of the law in the field of employee competition, it's been a huge task to produce this new edition, and we are delighted that it is now published. On this edition, my fellow employment partners, Kirsten Lucas and Parvis Garney, have worked with me on some chapters, and it has been a great team effort working with them and with Selwyn. Today, we will discuss the drafting of restrictive covenants and some key practical points employers should consider at the start of the employment relationship. Whilst restrictive covenants can be included in a variety of documents, such as acquisition agreements, partnership agreements and settlement agreements, this podcast will focus on the start of an employment relationship. We'll look at the following issues. The starting point for all restrictive covenants. The main types of restrictive covenants. What should be considered when setting the scope of your restrictive covenants. And some practical tips and trends. The starting point for all restrictive covenants in employment contracts is that, as a default position, They are unenforceable because they are in restraint of trade and, as a matter of public policy, freedom of trade is to be encouraged and not curtailed. Against that background, Kate, when will a restrictive covenant be enforceable? A court will only enforce a restrictive covenant if it satisfies two key criteria. Firstly, that it protects a legitimate business interest of the employer. And secondly, and importantly, it goes no further than is reasonably necessary to protect that legitimate business interest. So, in this context, what is a legitimate business interest? In broad terms, the legitimate business interests that a court will allow to be protected by a covenant are, firstly, trade connections, typically connections with customers, clients and, in some instances, suppliers. Secondly, trade secrets and other confidential information. And thirdly, the stability of the employer's workforce. Whilst those are the three key categories, Richard, the courts have made it clear that they are not the only legitimate interests capable of protection. So, for example, the pool of temporary workers of an employment agency has been recognised as a legitimate interest capable of protection by the agency. An employer's first step when considering restrictive covenants is to identify the legitimate interests they are seeking to protect. Is it, for example, the client for whom a particular employee or perhaps a team of employees will be responsible? Or it might be the confidential information to which an employee will be privy. Taking a recent example, the confidential plans of Dyson to develop an electric car in competition with Tesla. Once the legitimate interest has been identified, uh, the employer then needs to move on to the second stage of the drafting process, which is considering the appropriate type of covenant. Many listeners will be aware that there are a number of different types of restrictive covenant, such as non-competition covenants, and non-dealing and non-solicitation covenants. Can you provide some further detail on the options available to employers when they are looking to prepare covenants to protect their legitimate business interests? The principal types of covenants are as follows. First of all, non-competition covenants. These are the most draconian options for the employer and they prohibit the former employee being involved in a competing business. 
Now, traditionally, this type of covenant was always limited to a particular and often small area. However, as business has become more global, it's now not unusual for the areas to be more extensive, even, for example, worldwide, or for the prohibition to be limited to joining named competitors. Coming down the the scale, the next type of covenant will be a non-dealing covenant. Uh, As their name suggests, they prohibit dealings irrespective of whether it was instigated or encouraged by the former employee. Thirdly, there are non-solicitation covenants. They typically prohibit attempts by a former employee to encourage customers or clients to transfer their business. And lastly, what are commonly referred to as non-poaching covenants, which prohibit a former employee from encouraging their former colleagues to leave and sometimes to join them in a competitive business. There are also confidentiality covenants that applies both during and after termination of employment. And Richard, you'll remember we talked about those in our first podcast in this mini-series. And listeners can find that podcast at our website or by reviewing our previous podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. Kate, obviously those types of covenants cover quite a few options for the employer. How should they choose which covenants are going to be appropriate in their particular case? The employer does need to choose very carefully. Clearly a covenant which prohibits competition generally is more onus than one which prohibits dealing with former clients or colleagues. Likewise, a covenant which prohibits dealings of any sort with a client is more onerous than a non-solicitation covenant. One of the key questions a court is likely to consider when being asked whether to enforce a restrictive covenant or not is whether a less onerous covenant would have been sufficient to provide the protection required by the employer. It's therefore important for employers to ask themselves the same question when selecting their suite of covenants. Typically, a non-competition covenant might be used where an employer is looking to protect its trade secrets or other confidential information. While some protection can be given by a confidentiality covenant, the courts recognise the practical difficulties of detecting a breach of that type of covenant and of the damage that can be caused by even an inadvertent breach by a former employee. If the employer selects a trio of non-dealing, non-solicitation and non-poaching covenants, that is the most usual combination, depending on what the employer is looking to protect. Typically, this combination of covenants would apply to clients, customers, sometimes suppliers and usually also former colleagues. However, employers should also think about whether they should include prospective customers or clients within the scope of the non-dealing and non-solicitation covenants, For example, where significant expenditure and time has been spent in trying to secure the business of a prospective customer. You've mentioned, Kate, that restrictive covenants will only be enforced by a court if they go no further than is reasonably necessary to protect the legitimate interest uh, the employer has identified. To increase the chance of a court determining that a restrictive covenant is enforceable, is it right that identifying that interest is only one step in the process of drafting the enforceable restrictive covenant? Absolutely, Richard. If an employer has simply identified what type of protection it needs, but has not given any real thought to the extent or scope of the protection needed, then the covenant will almost certainly fail. Importantly, a court will not rewrite a covenant and has no power to do so. Consequently, if the covenant doesn't protect a legitimate business interest, or it goes further than is necessary to do so, then the covenant will fail. It's also important to remember that the reasonableness of a restrictive covenant is judged at the time the contract is entered into and not when the former employer is looking to enforce a particular covenant. 
that particular topic has been the subject of a number of cases recently and we've had many reminders from the courts that it is the time the contract is entered into that is the key critical moment. The scope of the selected types of covenant is clearly of vital importance. What are some of the key considerations when setting that scope? The first consideration is almost always to look at the connection between the employee and the legitimate interests the employer is seeking to protect. So, for example, will the employee have sufficient access to the employer's trade secrets or confidential information to justify a non-competition covenant? In the context of customers or clients, is the connection sufficiently strong and current for it to be reasonable for the employer to prohibit dealings? When drafting the scope of the covenant, there are then three key issues to be covered. Firstly, duration. Secondly, what is the prohibited activity? And thirdly, the scope of the protected pool. Dealing first with duration, obviously that is how long the covenant will run. Generally speaking, the more onerous the restriction, the shorter the duration that can be justified. And for this reason, Richard, you frequently see the more draconian non-competition covenants, which are shorter than non-dealing or non-solicitation covenants contained in the same contract. For other types of covenant, duration will depend on a series of fact-specific issues. So, for example, for a covenant prohibiting dealing with clients, the employer should consider how often the client deals with the employer's business and how long the employer will need to replace the relationship the employee is likely to develop with the clients in question. Secondly, look at prohibited activity. This should naturally be directly linked to the type of business the employer will be doing in his role. A court will not prohibit a former employee from providing a client with a completely different product or service. Lastly, the protected pool. For non-dealing, non-solicitation or non-poaching restrictions, the key considerations for the employer are which client employees or suppliers should be protected. In the case of customers or clients, this will usually be limited to those with whom the employee will have had material dealings during a fixed period prior to termination or, if earlier, the end of the employee's active employment. This is commonly called the backstop period. But Kate, what about a situation where there has been no direct contact between the exiting employee and a client, but there has been contact between that client and one of the employee's direct reports? In those circumstances, provided there is confidential information about the client to which the exiting employee has had access via his direct reports, then it would be legitimate to include that client within the protected pool. When considering protecting your workforce, presumably it will be difficult in most circumstances to try and protect your entire workforce. What sort of connection should you be looking at? In that situation, it's normally uh, the restriction should normally be limited to those colleagues of a certain seniority, for example, those whose departure could damage a business, particularly if they're left as part of the team, and also colleagues with whom the employee has dealt in a specified period of time prior to termination or, if earlier, the end of the employee exiting employee's active employment. Twelve months is a commonly used backstop period, but won't always be appropriate. You've mentioned a couple of times fixing the period in which the employee must have had a connection with the customer or client or colleague uh, prior to termination or, if earlier, the end of the employee's period of active employment. Why is that? Richard, that's to address the situation where the employee is sent on garden leave and, as a result, has his connection with the customers, etc., removed. 
In cases of longer periods of garden leave, if the backstop period isn't drafted in the alternative in the way in which I've described, the result can be that the covenant is completely ineffective because, for example, there are no customers or clients who fall within the protected pool. So it's clear from what you're saying that employers should not simply rely on a one-size-fits-all template when preparing restrictive covenants. Exactly. That is a very dangerous strategy. In assessing the enforceability of a restrictive covenant, the court will scrutinise whether the employer has tailored the covenant to the individual circumstances. Where it feels the employer has overstepped the mark, the covenant will fail. What other practical tips can you provide listeners with? Firstly, and most importantly, ensure that those responsible for framing the covenants have a very clear understanding of how the business operates and what the role of the employer will be in the business. In the chapter of the book where we deal with drafting restrictive covenants, we give a checklist of the information that is needed. Like all checklists, it shouldn't be followed slavishly. An answer to one question may, for example, give rise to another question that should be asked. But it is a very useful starting point and it shows the breadth of the information that you'll need. Secondly, where the contract includes a garden leave clause, as many contracts nowadays will, the employer should always consider whether the duration of the covenant should be reduced by any time the employee spends on garden leave. That won't be appropriate in all cases, for example, where uh, the garden leave period is very short. But where the aggregate of the periods of garden leave and the covenants is too long, by not including this offset arrangement, the courts may strike down the covenants on the basis that they are too lengthy and go further than is reasonably necessary. Thirdly, the extent of the court's powers to rescue a covenant by severing or cutting out particular wording, which would otherwise make a covenant too wide, is also very topical. Following the Court of Appeal's relatively recent decision in Egan, Zender and Tillman, the precise extent of the court's powers to sever and their appetite for doing so has been called into question. The case is being appealed to the Supreme Court and pending further clarification, whilst it's always been unwise to place reliance on a court's willingness to sever, it is particularly imprudent to do so now. In this podcast, we are focused on preparing covenants when an employee is commencing employment, but it shouldn't be forgotten that covenants should be reviewed frequently. For example, a promotion is an excellent opportunity for an employer to review an employee's restrictive covenant and see whether they need amending or updating as a result of the new role or developments in this area of the law. That's absolutely right, Richard, and variation of covenants and particularly the need for an employee to receive consideration that is some benefit in return for new covenants, is something we will be focusing on in the next podcast in this mini-series. Thanks, Kate, and thanks for listening. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting the Stevenson Harwood website. (laughs) 